we will begin with a prayer. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. O God, the fountain of wisdom, whose will is good and gracious, and whose law is truth, we beseech you to guide and bless our senators and representatives in the legislature of this state, that they may enact such laws as shall please you, to the glory of your name and the welfare of this people, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Mile High Theology a podcast and live event that probes the depths of meaning, belonging, and existence. Today we are joined by the Honorable Leslie Herod, who represents District 8 in the Colorado House of Representatives and was the first LGBT African American elected to the Colorado Legislature. Welcome, Representative Herod. Thank you so much for having me. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what took you into politics? Yeah, so um, my, I was raised by a single mom in the military. I was actually born in Germany. Everyone, when you're in politics, asks you, where were you? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Are you from here? Uh, the answer is I'm not originally from Colorado, but Colorado has always been my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom grew up in Oakland in a pretty tough area um, and had a couple of options of how she could better her life and the lives of others. And in Oakland at the time, it was join the Black Panthers or join the military, right? Mm. And and so she chose to join the military and um, and through there became, through the military became an OBGYN. Um, yeah, I had me and my brother and we kind of traveled the world. And seeing her um, kind of just being that strong role model for me uh, really led me to believe that I could be whatever I wanted to be. And so as I kind of went through, you know, high school, middle school, college, um, I had this example of her um, that made me think that the the sky was the limit, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But one thing that she always really pressed upon me was the desire to serve her country, right? And in whatever way that is. And so for my mom, that was joining the military. um, But for me, it looked a little different. Um, And I decided to go into community um, advocacy and public service in that way um, and got involved in community organizations. I was involved in basically in college, I was involved in everything from the Black Student Alliance, Umasi Mecha, like every single organization. Um, And then when I got out of college, it was basically the same. I got involved in the community, saw, you know, kind of what needs needed to be addressed and figured out ways to do that through policy. Um, And so that's really what led me um, into public service and just seeing her push us forward and the really the sacrifice she made every single day for for my family um, reminded me that it was time for me to also then sacrifice and give back as well. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, So. I'm sure it's 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 a complicated thing to be a first. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what that experience has been like being the first LGBT African American elected to the Colorado legislature? Yeah, so you know, I think that's a, a really interesting question because uh, you know when I graduated college, um, I had done all this stuff. I was the president of, of the student body, and I went to see you. So I see some buffs in the room, and probably out there as well, um, and. Uh, I was the president, so I ran a $36 million budget before I was 20 years old. Wow. And 
I didn't know we had the largest student government in the nation when I first started running for office there, but we do. Uh, and CU, I think, still does have one of the largest student government in the nation. But as a young college student and then having that uh, responsibility um, and then coming back into, you know, and then graduating, you know, it was hard to translate the fact that I was in student government and, you know, ran all these budgets into actual job, right? So I got, I graduated and I thought, well, obviously I'm going to be a CEO somewhere, you know, like, duh. And I would apply for positions and it was like, no, you're, you just ran student government. What did you do? You know? And so I one day went to the state capitol and I brought my resume and I said, here's my resume. I can start tomorrow. And I just randomly went to the speaker's office and um, that they hired me as an aide. Um, and then in walked in on my second day, I'll never forget, in walked in State Representative Rosemary Marshall. And at the time, she was the only African-American female serving in the state capitol in the House or the Senate. Wow. Just one. And she came in very regally, right? And I was like, whoa, who are you? And I was a little terrified, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, and she said, well, who are you? And um, when did you start here? And I was like, oh, I don't know who I am right now. I don't know my name. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then finally, when I figured out who I was, I told her. And, um, and she said, great. How many hours are you working? I was thinking I was working 10 or 20 hours. She's like, well, you're going to work the rest for me. Um, we're going to get you full time and make sure that you have the su support you need to be successful here. So I started working for her and seeing that there was actually an African-American elected official in Colorado blew my mind, right? I was like, wait, maybe I could actually not only work behind the scenes, but one day I could too run, run for office. And I and started... What, what age? 22, 23? Yeah, at this point. about that time. Yeah. And so I started working on, you know, campaigns in the building, out of the building. Um, I started working on LGBT equality issues. Mm. And my initial walk into that and talking to Rosemary and others was, you know, kind of a coming out moment for me. And I think, though they knew I had a partner and that I was, I was gay, I never had the conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And my role then was to talk to African-American leaders and churches about LGBT equality. Mm. So while I found, you know, some church homes to be safe for me, it wasn't always that way, and it wasn't all of them. So here I am going into these black churches and having these conversations. And I got to tell you, I had the same biases that other folks do, which is I will not be welcomed at the table mm. if, I t if I am open and honest about who I am. Yeah. And I was wrong. I was wrong, uh, pleasantly. Um, the African-American leadership in Colorado definitely embraced me and embraced the issue. Um, and the churches did as well. The majority of the churches did as well. And so, um, so that was pretty empowering for me. And I started to realize that I could be my authentic self, um, all the different parts of who I am, and maybe even run for office in Colorado and maybe even win. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, went on about, you know, Later on, fast forward, running for office, and I just remember the day that I got the uh, letter of endorsement, and it was from the LGBT Victory Fund, mm. um, which is a national organization that supports LGBT candidates. And at the same day, I got the endorsement letter from the African American Ministerial Alliance. Wow. And for me, that was really powerful to show how much we've progressed 
and how African-American ministers across the metro area decided that I was going to be their first endorsement um, and that my sexual orientation was actually um, a positive and a value add and could actually help them build bridges with communities they know that they weren't working with as well as they should. And so it was really powerful. And I just, I did ask, I said, do you mind if this press release goes out together? And they said, great. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Both, both parts. And I was like, this is amazing. So that kind of gave me a little oomph and I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. You know? So it was good. Amazing. And full disclosure, my cousin works for LGBT Victory Fund. He's kind of the reason I know Representative Herod, on and on and on and on. It's a small, small Very world. Small <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you are a communicant at Church of the Holy Redeemer, mm-hmm. an Episcopal parish here in Denver. Mm-hmm. So if you could tell us just a little bit about kind of your relationship with the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. and then further how that relationship informs your perspective, not necessarily the way you vote in the House or anything, your political orientation, but just how does that inform you as a person? Yeah. Well, um, I had been definitely church shopping for a while. Mm -hmm. And as a military brat, you know, we traveled every couple of years and um, I was not raised in the Episcopal Church. Um, And I kind of just went wherever I felt safe and welcomed. And it was different denominations each time. And as I got older, I started to think about, okay, well, but what denomination am I? What do I believe in, you know? Um, And I landed on the Episcopal Church. Hmm. And then from there, it was then where do I go? And I had some misses, and that didn't feel like home. And then I had a neighbor and a friend uh, tell me about her church, the Holy Redeemer, and invite me to church with her. And, you know, I think... Like many folks who find a new a new church home, I was looking for a home, right? Mm-hmm. I was looking for a place to go. And when I walked into the Holy Redeemer, it just felt like home. Wow. It felt like where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've been so supported and embraced by my church family um, before I was running for office. I think not many folks knew I would I was even in politics or knew I was interested in running for office because I didn't talk about that at church. And I was kind of, I always sat in the back <laughs> and uh, quiet. And um, and then one day I just kind of made an announcement, I'm running for office, you know, and uh, I was just been very supportive ever since. And that's kind of um, been a real place of solitude for me. And Father Steve is here from the Holy Redeemer and always appreciate uh, your support. Um almost all of the time, <laughs> every event in some way, Father Steve is here. And, and, and I know that, right? I know that Father Steve is here, even if he's not here physically. And I know that my, my church and my faith is always with me as well. And so that just makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was campaigning, it was rough. You know, I would, you know, you get kind of assaulted from all sides or you're just tired and stressed out or you don't know if you can even go to the grocery store without someone asking you a political question or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew I would always be safe and supported um, and also have the ability to learn and grow at church on Sundays. Wow. And so, um, and, you know, that's just, it means a lot to me. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So... I think the majority, if not all the people in this room are Christians Mm -hmm. or baptized people. If you would, just say a little bit about what you think our concerns should be in 2018, politically, socially, economically. What what should we 
be concerned about. I know the the state legislature here in Colorado starts next Wednesday. Yeah. What should be what should we be watching? So I'm going to read a quote that okay. Father Steve sent me <laughs> from the from the Bible, um, some scripture, and then we'll go into it because it actually really did resonate a lot with me. And you guys know this. It's from Matthew. Um, when the Son of Man comes in, in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous... Righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we were that you were a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king answered them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of those who are members of my family, you did it to me. Wow. And I will tell you that that means a lot to me. And it's just a cornerstone of my faith. Um, But it's also a cornerstone of what I do in the Capitol building every single day. As elected officials um, and policymakers, we have the ability to turn our backs on least amongst us every single day. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to decide to Mm over-incarcerate, right? Um, To uh, criminalize the homeless, Mm-hmm. We have that ability. Really, literally, with the push of a button, we are able to do that. But in what I do is make sure that we are actually, one, taking care of the most vulnerable people in our communities, in our societies, right? And so I'm on the Judiciary Committee. I'm on the Finance Committee. And what I look at most is making sure that we, number one, are treating people like humans. We're treating people with respect and dignity. And I will tell you that's a fight, Sometimes there are people in our society that other people think should not um, be treated well or don't deserve, um, whether it's a second chance or even a hand up or to be looked at in their eye. And that's a huge problem. And that's a huge problem we have in society, but definitely something as elected officials and policymakers we have to look at. And so when we talk about my faith and why I do what I do or why I sacrifice in the way that I do, it's because we have the ability to change the lives of every single Coloradan, right? We have the ability to change the lives of people in the work that we do. Mm. And we have to stay focused on who really needs it, right? Um, we need to make sure that we are treating people with dignity and respect and that um, the incarcerated, you know, or those who may be going in that direction, one, we're preventing it, but also that you know, when they get out, that we're, we're letting them come back into society in a productive way, right? Um, and that our, our young people actually have access to good quality education, regardless of their zip code or how much money they have. And that, the, you know, homeless folks and, and people who are suffering from addiction actually get the treatment they need, not just a jail bed, yeah. you know? Um, that's what I do. That's what I do every day. And um, I am always supported in that in, in my church and my faith um, and in those who believe in that as well. And, and I, I just, you know, I think as we have 
more elected officials who really do embrace um, their faith, right, uh, and that piece of their faith, it's really important. And, and for me, when I go to church, that's what I hear, right? Mm. I hear stories of how to be a better servant, um, of how to be humble and how to walk with God um, and how to support all of those in our communities, and also ask for support and help when we need it too. And so uh, I, I would just say that, that that informs my work every day. And um, you didn't ask this, but as people say, you know, well, you know, how do you separate your faith and politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be like, you know, how do I separate my blackness, right, from yeah. politics? I don't. Mm-hmm. It's a part of who I am. Exactly. Um, and uh, I think really it's really the only aspect. reason I invited you to come is so you could say that. <laughs> Which part? The blackness <laughs> part or the... <laughs> the whole thing. That, oh. that, like, you can't compartmentalize... Yeah, you can't. ...your faith. And, and, no. and that we need Christian people who are, like, making really important decisions in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Like, real Christian people. Right. Um, right. You know, I mean... Right. And, and, and I, will, I will expand that to other faiths yeah. as well. Exactly. Um, exactly. But, you know, it's just so funny because... You know, we, we, I serve with um, Christians, atheists, Jewish folks, um, no Muslims right now. Um, uh, I'm not sure if anyone is, is Hindu or... Um, but what I find is so many of our faiths have those common principles that are the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not many faiths that I can think of, none that I can think of that says, you know, treat someone like crap, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, or mm-hmm. like lift yourself up first. It's great. You know, um, I just, I don't see that. And so it's, just, you know, regardless of how you identify that, that you have that faith core and like, it's, you know, that there's something bigger than you, right. That you're responsible to, mm-hmm. um, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. So, can we give Representative Herod an amen? amen. <laughs> this is Malhai Theology. I am the Reverend Broderick Greer, Canon Presenter at St. John's Cathedral, and I am interviewing the Honorable Leslie Herod, the first LGBT African American elected to the Colorado Legislature. Um, as we are closing, um, if you could just say what, like, what's fun about being a state representative? Like, yeah. what's, what's the best part of your job? Um, well, you asked me this and I actually didn't answer um, about being, what's it like being in the building and being black and gay? And quite frankly, it's pretty awesome, right? Uh, mm. Sometimes people don't know what to expect from me, which is fine. Um, but I have a, an amazing cohort in the Black Caucus mm. that we never had before. So I remember I talked to you about Representative Rosemary Marshall as the only African-American female. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now there are six African-American people serving in the State House, more than ever. Um, and there are two in the Senate, so eight total, which is more than in the history. So we have a cohort, right? And we're able to work together and support each other. That's great to have that group and then to expand out from there. But then I also have the LGBT Caucus. Mm-hmm. And there are five members of the LGBT caucus. Really? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so we're able to work together. And then there's me in the middle who's able to kind of bring folks, all of us together, say, hey, you know, like maybe this conversion therapy should be something the Black Caucus should look at, too, because, you know, and then and kind of like reach across. Or maybe the LGBT community might want to think about some of this policing stuff because it's impacting the LGBT community as well. Um, And so we're able to do a lot of this stuff together. And so it's a fun place to be in. I'm able to kind of like poke my toe in a lot of different places. I'm also a zennial now, not a millennial, a zennial. And we kind of have a younger people's caucus as well. And we do things a little differently, um, but we have these kind of pockets of support built in um, that really help us to get things done. And so it's fun to pass a bill. It's fun to change the law. (laughs) I mean, I'm kind of a rule breaker sometimes. And so I thought, you know, it would be really fun to make the laws, right? That's kind of a thing that I love to do. And so my first year I got 12 bills passed and signed into law um, somewhere around there. And and that part's really fun. Like, it's really good to be able to make change, uh, to build coalitions with unlikely partners. I think people are most surprised by how many of my bills are co-primed, co-sponsored by uh, Republicans from rural Colorado. Mm. And they're like, how did you, what? Like, uh, that doesn't make sense to them. But really it makes sense because you go back to that core, right? And and what their true values are and who they're working for. And... Um, and that's how you find those partnerships. So that's really fun. Um, you know, I just, I think that it's also really a great thing to be able to go to the schools or to reach out to young people, mm-hmm. to, to work with my amazing staff who's here as well, Alma, uh, who's my chief of staff, as well as some of our other interns and aides. And, and one day, like, look at them and say, you can, you can have this chair too. You know, you can run for office. You can be here. Um, you deserve it as well. You have a voice. Um, and whatever you want to be, you can do. And let's figure out how to get you there. That's that's a good part of the job, too. Um, and I forgot to say this earlier, but just in case the IRS is listening, St. <laughs> John's Cathedral is not endorsing Representative Herod. Yeah, too bad. Um, too bad. <laughs> I wish we could do that. We don't want to lose our tax-exempt status. Um, but this has been a lovely, lovely conversation. Thank you so much Thanks. for being with us this evening. Um and we're just going to open up for questions. So if anyone has any questions for probably about the next 15 or 20 minutes, here is a mic, actually. And you are free to ask Representative Harry anything you want, within reason. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> Hello. Hi. I wanted to ask, is there a bill or an accomplishment that you're most proud of so far? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question. Um, so my, I've, I've served on the board for Urban Peak, which is our homeless youth serving agency in Colorado. Uh, serves, we have offices in, in Denver and shelters in Denver and also in Colorado Springs, but we serve the, obviously from across the state and even across state lines. And um, I got off the board when I started to to serve in legislature. My first bill that I introduced was to provide a dedicated funding stream that would go to homeless youth serving agencies in Colorado. Uh, For folks here, it's really hard to get bills that cost money through the legislature, Mm -hmm. really hard. Um, And so we didn't fund it out of the general fund. We did something a little different. So 
before I tell you, because you're going to be really excited about how you can help, I will tell you that when I started working in the governor's office as, as, a, as a younger, um, a newly you know, staffer in the building, my first policy assignment was to lift the prohibition that we had on the books that went to homeless youth serving agencies. So there was, it was actually illegal for the state to give money to homeless youth and homeless youth serving agencies in Colorado. And look, I'm not that old, so it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it was just a few years ago. And I, I went to some of the members and I said, why is this on the books? They said, well, we don't want to support those bad kids. They just need to listen to their parents and go home. I said, well, have you ever talked to a homeless youth? Like, do you have any idea what it's like? You know, and they didn't. And so as we started to have the conversation and people realized there's a lot more stuff going on in people's homes than that, uh, mine started to change, right? So we lifted the prohibition. That bill passed and the governor then signed it. Um, but I just did the policy work on it. But that's what kind of got me involved more in Urban Peak and just thinking about what the situation is like here in Colorado. And so fast forward, I knew that I wanted my first bill to address the homeless youth issue. Mm. Um, too many kids are on the streets right here in Denver. Too many people are walked by without even being seen on 16th Street Mall, for instance, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to change that. And so, you know, I went and said, all right, how am I going to get this bill to pass to actually provide? We lifted the prohibition, but we never provided the funding, you know, to actually get some of these services mm -hmm. so that our shelter doors don't have to close down, right? Or so that we can have more beds here in Colorado. And, and actually services, apartments, mental health treatment, you know, trauma-informed care, things like that. And um, I asked for, uh, for some money and from the general fund, and I was told no, that we de there's other priorities from the caucus. It's, of course, I'm a freshman. I've not even started yet, really. And, um, and what we ended up doing was interesting. We created a tax checkoff that went to Urban Peak. So as you guys are filling out your taxes, if you're interested in helping homeless youth, you're actually able now to designate a part of your taxes directly to Urban Peak and to go to homeless youth serving agencies, that part of your refund, right? Um, and that is something you can automatically do on your tax form now. So that's what, how we decided to fund this bill. There's a couple of other organizations that have the same checkoff, um, and we were able to get that passed and signed by the governor. So, um, and in that passage and in that, in that signature process, we were able to bring homeless youth into the Capitol to sit with the governor to watch the bill become signed and to make sure their voices were heard. Um, I'm really proud of that. I think uh, that was a huge accomplishment um, for, uh, for the state, really. Uh, and then on top of that, I, we have this thing called the budget process, right? So we do this budget process and they say, oh, you know, freshman, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get anything on the budget, just so you know. It's for joint budget committee members only, the all powerful, you're not, you just, just sit and listen. Well, I don't really sit and listen very well. <laughs> Maybe on Sundays. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so I, I decided to create a budget amendment that actually would provide tampons to women in corrections. Because when I would go to corrections, I'd talk to women, they'd say, say, well, what can make you feel more dignified here? And they said, actually, we're not given tampons. And that's a huge problem for women. And did they have to buy them? They had to prove medical need in order to get them provided. And or they had to pay for them, mm -hmm. and um, and it's it, they're so expensive when you're making you know a dollar a day or whatnot, right? I mean this is ridiculous, um, and I couldn't get the Department of Corrections to just do it. So instead, I decided to run a budget amendment that took the money from the executive director's salary and put <laughs> it into into providing tampons for women in corrections. And it's funny because the men wouldn't 
talk at the well against it because they had a hard time talking about tampons. <laughs> and so the women obviously were supportive, and so we ended up not having any opposition. And I was like, what's going on? And then behind the scenes, someone, I think, said, well, what if they hang themselves with it? Which infuriated all the women serving <laughs> and anyone else who like had any common sense, right? And was like, this is not going to happen. Um, and all of a sudden, folks started saying, this is actually a good idea. Why are we not treating women in corrections with at least this amount of respect and dignity? Um, and the executive director said, just don't take it out of my budget, but don't take it out of my salary. We'll find it in, va- in savings from somewhere else, which they did. Um, and women, as of July 1st, get uh, a limited amount of tampons in corrections. Um, they don't have to prove any medical need. Um, and this model has now been shopped around to other states as well as, and, as, and at the federal level to make sure that we can start remembering that the people who are in corrections are also people first and that they deserve to be treated with respect. And so that's another one that I I ran that I thought was, um, that I'm really proud of because honestly, I don't think the word tampon had been said on the floor of the house ever in the history of Colorado (laughs) in that way. And so, um, and so I was, I was really um, proud to show other women too, that we can fight for these issues um, and we don't have to, you know, hide or uh, moderate that at all. Wow. Any more questions? Comments? Do you have any bills that you're particularly excited about this upcoming session? Yeah, so I'll be still doing a lot of work within the correction system and reentry. Um, but, you know, one thing I'll say that's not a, a full bill yet, so stay tuned on it. Um, but I'm looking at a program right now in Colorado that provides moms who are dealing with addiction the ability to seek um, help after the ba- their babies are born. So right now we have a great program here in Colorado called Special Connections that says if you are a mom and you're pregnant, up until the baby is born, if you go and say, I need help, that you're able to do so without fear of persecution, um, unless there's any crime of, uh, involved around it. But, you know, just for the sake that you're, you're using and you're pregnant, you don't go straight to jail, Right. Um, it's a great program, and a lot of women are getting treatment through that. But the cutoff is as soon as the baby is born. So you've got these, these, these moms, right, and these, these little babies, and uh, the moms just don't know what to do or don't know how to go- get help, and they think, oh, I've got this program I could go to and I can access. And they go to their six-week checkup, and they're like, I need help. And they're like, ooh, sorry, you're late. Um, you can't actually get treatment now, and um, if you – if you state that you are battling addiction, um, we could take your child away for abuse and neglect, um, which is which is true, right? I mean, you don't want kids to be in unsafe homes, but also you want to make sure that people have access to treatment. And so what I'm looking at doing in Colorado is expanding that program called Special Connections so that more women have access to this and that at least up to their six-week checkup or even later down a, a year in, if, if, they, if they relapse or if they need help, that they can get that help um, and that the state will, will help them. Um, and so that's something that I'm looking at. You know, addiction, uh, especially the opioid epidemic, is hitting Colorado extremely hard. It's hitting the country really hard. I don't know if you guys have seen that our mortality rate has decreased for the first time in, in ever, I think, um, because of addiction. Um, we've got overdoses happening uh, every 30, 36 hours. Someone dies of overdose here in Colorado. Um, and so we've got to do something about it. And so, and I think we have to approach it in a really humane way, right? And get people to access 
to treatment that they need. And remember that access to treatment doesn't end the day they walk into a recovery or a treatment program and then leave after that, you know, 90 or 60 days. That actually expands into their entire life, right? It's a lifestyle change and recovery is a part of that process as well. Um, and so that's some things that I will really be be focusing a lot on. So I'm excited about the next, the upcoming session. Um, it's a political year, so that apparently changes things uh, and the ability to get things done. But I think around some of these issues, we can find that common humanity and get some things through, um, especially around things like um, like addiction, opioid epidemic, um, thinking about how we're how we're dealing with folks in corrections. Um, making sure that juveniles who are in the system actually have access to education and a real ability to succeed as opposed to shopping them around in different counties and never having the opportunity to truly graduate, the true opportunity to graduate. So those are the things that I, I really focus on. Um, also, we're running the Children's Mental Health Act bill this year mm. to provide um, funding and services for children who are facing severe mental health issues. Um, before the Children's Mental Health Act, so 10 years ago, um, you had to, if you had a child who had severe mental illness and you couldn't afford the treatment that they needed, um, you had to uh, relinquish your parental rights um, in order to get the state to pay for treatment. And that is just awful, just an awful process. Um, and so this bill would, would change that so that you don't have to do that and you could still seek treatment and you don't have to um, bankrupt your family to do so. Um, and so we're looking at that as well to make sure that these children have access to mental health. So there's a lot that I'm excited about. So stay tuned or follow my page and come down to the Capitol um, and, uh, and get involved if you'd like and, and however you can, because we definitely will need your help um, getting these bills through um, and also just elevating the dialogue so that people understand how big of an issue this is and how much support we have in Colorado for it. Wow. Well, uh, Representative Herod will be around um, until 7.30. Um, so if you have any questions after uh, we're done with the recording, please feel free to ask her. Let's give her a hand. Thank you. Malhai Theology is a 20s and 30s ministry of St. John's Cathedral here in Denver, Colorado. Thanks to Seth Reese, our communications director at St. John's, an audio and vid video engineer for the podcast event, our hosts here at Hooked on Colfax, and our guest, the Honorable Leslie Herod, who represents Colorado's 8th Legislative District? Sure. House District 8. House District 8. <laughs> Join us on Tuesday, February 6th at 630 in St. Martin's Chapel at St. John's Cathedral when we interview the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, Senior Minister at New York City's Middle Collegiate Thir Church. 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 <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here tonight. And um, you're dismissed. <laughs> but... Have fun. Um, Hooked is awesome because we actually didn't have to pay a cover to be here. So definitely buy food, buy drinks, whatever upstairs, and just stick around and talk. So thank you all again for being here tonight. Have a good evening.